Stand by for a start. Field is locked away and ready. Light. And they're off. He pressed the button and away they went. Welcome to Hoof on the Till, ABC News Radio's weekly look at all things racing. Helen Thomas and the mighty Max Preston are with you. And Max, what a day last Saturday was at Royal Randwick when the mighty Winx did what everyone hoped she would do and you were there. Helen, they don't come any better than that because at Winx, she's a champion. Whether she's the greatest of all time, I don't know, but there's never been one better and I don't think there ever will be one better. And to see the way she went out, it's all been said before, but it's a credit to those connections. And I'm talking about the owners. I'm talking about Chris Waller. I'm talking about Hugh Bowman. What a wonderful package. What a wonderful way for a champion to leave the turf. And how has she left it? She's left Sydney racing that is really booming at present. And again, it was a pleasure to be there. But you know, another pleasure, I bumped into a bloke at the street at Waverley and he was a man of vintage. Not quite of my vintage, but he might have been a senior. And he said, you know, I've never seen Winks before. And I went down to Randwick on Saturday and I said, the big question, mate, is will you go again? And he said, yes, most definitely. And that was what really encouraged me to get people to go to the races, to experience what I've experienced for the last 70 odd years, the thrill of Randwick and to see Randwick with people in it again. It was a day, a day I will remember and repeating myself they just don't come any better than it. It certainly was a wonderful occasion. And, and even just watching on telly, it was fantastic. The emotion just sort of leapt out at you. But Max, the first race of the day was dramatic in a different way and not a good way. No, it was um, it was a scene that happens on the race course, a scene you never want to see. It was a scene that emphasised the, the great athleticism and durability of jockeys when they're riding these these animals at such a hectic speed and what can happen. Glenn Schofield and Andrew Atkins cast on the turf in front of the grandstand and the way the way that Schofield got up. But we're going to pursue that story. We are. And we should say, too, that first race was for two-year-olds, young horses. Two young horses, as Max has made clear, hit the turf. Happily for them, they bounced up to their feet and galloped off and astonishingly, both horses are lining up again on Saturday afternoon in the Champagne Stakes. And Glenn Schofield, one of the two jockeys who fell, joins us now. Glenn, just what happened? Well, first of all, morning, Max, and morning, Helen. Um, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, look, it was pretty much as you described, Max. It was right at the end of the race, and um, the winners sort of shifted out quite abruptly and, and taken me out onto, you know, off a straight line, and I've, I was progressing to finish the race off well and we just um, had nowhere else to go but, but down onto the ground and, and young Andrew Atkins who was, who was following me to my outside um, you know it was impossible for him to avoid and he's come down extremely heavily and, and he's suffered some some quite horrific injuries um, fortunately he's going to recover from them but uh, yeah you're right it's not nice to see Glenn, feedback I've got from jockeys and young jockeys is when you have a fall, you stay there. You don't get up in case, in shock, you've done some damage and, and you should just wait there for assistance. But you seem to bounce off the turf. Yeah, I'm not made of rubber. I can tell you that. I'm feeling it 
you know, when I was younger, everyone else goes around, but I'm, I'm certainly feeling the effects of that fall. But you're right, Max, I, I did get up pretty quickly. It must have just been my, my, my subconscious telling me that I was okay, and I was more angry at what had occurred because it was it was unnecessary and could have been avoided. But, you know, the, you know, these things happen in racing. You can't get away from it. And we should say, Glenn, the jockey riding the horse that actually won the race in that very tight finish, Mark Zara, was suspended for a lengthy period, 25 meetings, I believe. Yeah, look, that's right, Helen. And look, he was extremely apologetic, and you could see the the, the anguish on on his face when we got when I got back into the room. And he was he was extremely concerned at what had transpired. By no means was it a, a deliberate act; it was just carelessness on his part. And, and and the stewards have dealt with him accordingly. But when I realised that I was I was okay, I, I immediately spotted another runner, uh, another rider on the ground, and the ambulances were nowhere to be seen. Uh, it took them quite some time to reach Andrew. Do we know why that is, Glenn? I think protocols, whatever they may be, um, I believe they have changed in light of, of what happened on Saturday. But, um, yeah, I got to Andrew pretty quickly and, and I was really confronted by what I was ultimately left to deal with because there was no one else anywhere around. Unfortunately, he wasn't breathing. He was he was pretty unresponsive. And just by talking to him and, and giving him a you know a bit of a loud yell, he, he eventually came around. I'm not sure if I had anything to do with it or his body just got back on, on a level keel and and once he started to moan and groan and move around a little bit I was a lot more relieved to know that you know it wasn't as dire as I hoped it wasn't and he's got some some a long list of injuries that he'll recover from but uh, yeah not nice for him not nice for anybody that was watching it either now it was particularly galling in the stand and you're, you're just right in front of us we're saying where is the ambulance uh, it was a point of much conjecture in the grandstand and I'm glad to see it's been rectified yeah well we can thank Peter Verandes uh, our CEO for that because he was very quick with his reaction to what happened and how he can rectify and, and make sure that the medical personnel get there you know, as quickly as possible and, and you know as a group we've got to thank him for that. Uh, Glenn the other thing that everyone's thinking I'm sure that didn't see the race is how are the two horses that fell you were riding Persan and Andrew was riding War Baron both trained by David Payne from what I understand they've just sort of bounced up galloped off and in fact they've done so well this week they're starting again on Saturday and you're riding Persan in the Champagne Stakes. That's right. Yeah. Um, look, he was he was actually running a great race. He was probably, if not winning it, he was going to be close to that. And um, fortunately, horse, you know, horses if they fall over in a race, it's like it's like us falling over while we go for a run. Um, they get up and they, you know, fortunately they they've come through the race unscathed um, in this instance. Um, and you know they're fit enough to take their place again on Saturday, and hopefully we get a much safer result. Aptly, Glenn, you're booked to ride home of the brave in the all-age stakes, of course, is a dual acceptor. But uh, home of the brave is an imported horse, a very promising horse. You've won on him in, in, in the past, and I do think he's uh, he's at that stage where he could really burst onto the racing scene. Yeah, Max, he's a type of horse who, he's a bit like a Usain Bolt. He just runs flat out from the get-go, and he's got a lot of natural vibe and energy about him, and, and you know, you've got to try and harness that sometimes when they're running over a longer distance, and you're right. He does. He does seem to have a little bit of X factor about him. We don't. We are, I don't think we've quite seen the best of him. Glenn, one last question. We've already been talking a little bit about the mighty mare, the the girl who's retired, Winks. I'm wondering, from your point of view, in the saddle, is there another horse, in terms of the the up and coming young star? Is there a horse that has particularly taken your eye, or that you've ridden, and you think you know this boy or girl could go on? 
Yeah, it's funny. Horse racing, you know, you get the you get the, the blatantly obvious horses that just make their presence felt as soon as they step on the racetrack, and then you have a horse like Winks who was you know, beaten quite a few times in her early preparations and didn't ever show that she was going to be as strong a force in, in, in our industry. So I would hate to put the put the mantle on any horse at the moment to say they're going to be the next Black Caviar or next Winks because we didn't think we'd see another, the likes of Black Caviar. And then lo and behold, Winks comes along and, and, and rewrites the record book. So look, that's the beauty of our, of our sport. We we don't know what's around the corner. That's what, why I get up in the morning and go and ride these horses because you know, you never know what's you know what you're gonna throw your leg over, you know, the next day. So, um, look, it's exciting times, and I'm sure everyone's waiting for the next. As you, the question you've asked, when when's the next one coming along? But you know, if we get anything like a, another black caviar or wings, we'll be blessed. Well, Glenn, I know everyone listening this morning will be thinking, go well on Saturday and take care. Thank you so much, Glenn Schofield, talking to us on Hoof on the Till and ABC News Radio. Well, Max, one of the things that people are now talking about, because the Queen, of course, has retired with 33 wins consecutively to her tally, what happens now for Winx? Now, I know a lot of people know she's going to be a mum, but just what happens? And one person who knows a lot about the breeding side of racing, as well as racing, is Carolyn Searcy. She's the presenter and producer of Bread to Win on Sky Racing, and she joins us now on Hoof. Carolyn, good to have you back on the show. Thanks, Helen. Hi to you, Max, as well. Now, what she going to do she's obviously still in the stables as we we're speaking now she's probably hasn't left chris wallace stables but her routine i'd imagine will be being stepped down gradually yeah well that's exactly right i mean they're leaving her in the stable sort of for the week since that amazing queen elizabeth win because you know the feed that they're on you know these are prime athletes so they're really fed to, to produce the maximum that they can on a specific day which is obviously race day but then you need to sort of wind them back a bit you need to take that hard feed out of their, their system, you need to let them start to relax a bit. So she, she'll certainly still be going out for a canter right through the week and, and still doing a little bit of exercise, but certainly no more, you know, sort of hard gallops or anything. She'll be having a nice relaxing week. I know a lot of the owners were going to see her and lots of people will be taking some last photos of her at the stables because, you know, she'll be so much missed within the, the whole yard. Once she stepped down, Carolyn, then what? Does she go to a farm as she put in a paddock next door to Chris Waller's stables. What's next? I don't think they put her straight out in a big paddock. I mean, part of keeping her in the stable is so, you know, if she's on that feed and she went out in a big paddock, she could just gallop and gallop and gallop and really hurt herself. So I'd say they'd put her out into a smaller sort of a, a paddock, not a, not a huge paddock initially. Um, so she'll go to a farm, I imagine, sort of somewhere around the Hunter Valley, somewhere not too far from where the major stallions are. And eventually, you know, I'm sure within a very short period of time, they'd probably put a, a friend in with her. So, you know, these mares are very much herd animals. They don't like being alone. They don't like being away from other mares. But you do see sometimes these very strong race mares they're often the, the boss of the paddock. So, you know, I've seen this with a lot of them over the years, your Maccabi Divas or, you know, a, a mare I know, Norzita, who was a, a very good race filly, they become the boss of the paddock. So, you know, they'll probably put in a nice, quiet sort of a mare with her just so she has a bit of a buddy, um, you know, and a horse that's not going to be sort of trying to kick her. Um, and then gradually they might introduce her to a, to a larger sort of herd of mares. She'll turn into a much calmer, quieter sort of horse. I mean, we saw when she kicked out at the, the fence there at Rose Hill in the, the, one of the final track work media days, 
that she does have quite a quite a strong spirit, and often the, the very good racehorses do. So she will just relax. She'll change into a slightly calmer, more relaxed horse. And between now and then, there will be a lot of discussion and a lot of meetings, I'd imagine, with connections with her owners as to just which stallion she is booked to see. Or really, we should turn it around. Which stallion is actually <laughs> booked to be in the presence of the Queen? So, I mean, what is involved in this process? Well, the owners have said, you know, they haven't actually even thought about it. They've, they've sat down. They'll be getting loads of advice from loads of people. Um, you know, it, it's a very interesting sort of idea. There are questions, would she go overseas? Now, th- these are sort of my thoughts. I wouldn't imagine they'd send her overseas for the first fall. She's never been on a plane before. You know, usually with, with these horses they send overseas, they try and do it in a year when they don't have a foal. So maybe in three or four years, you wouldn't be trying to send her initially. We have so many fabulous stallions in Australia and often with international pedigrees too. The thought of putting her on a plane, sending her over, all the risks involved with that, I would be very, very surprised if they did that. As I said, there are so many here to choose from. And it's interesting you say that because Patrick Hogan, Sir Patrick Hogan, who's one of Australasia's greatest breeders, has uh, been quoted earlier in The Australian this week as saying, is there a stallion anywhere in the world good enough to go to her? She is the best I've seen. It's quite big. I mean, it's huge praise from Sir Patrick Hogan. I mean, he, he had the Tristram, then he he had the Beale, and he's one of the great pedigree experts. I mean, he can find these nicks and crosses going back nine generations, and that's what he actually looks for. So when he's quoted as talking about Fastnet Rock as being a the perfect stallion out of all the choices for wings, you certainly sit up and listen. I did, I did sort of laugh to myself because Marauding is in Fastnet Rock's pedigree, and he was a Golden Slipper winner by Sir Patrick's own Sir Tristram. So there might have been a touch of bias in there, but I do certainly agree that, that Plasnet Rock is the sort of horse he's produced, you know, Atlantic Drill champions of their generation. First Steel, who beat Winks three times. Hinchinbrook, who's a, a top stallion or was a top stallion. Merchant Navy, Shoals, you know, Oaks winners such as Unforgotten. So I can see exactly why he's saying Plasnet Rock. The other thing to think of is the first foal of a mare can often be a little bit smaller. So to go to some of the stallions that have been mentioned that can throw slightly smaller horses, Fastnet Rock, you're almost guaranteed of getting a lovely, big, strong first foal. And the other point, he in fact agrees with you because the other point he makes in this article by Tony Arrell is that he wouldn't be looking at a Northern Hemisphere stallion for Winks as she's done all her racing here and there are prolific bloodlines here. Well, that's it. And, and even in the, the Sydney Morning Herald, we've seen this week talking about the you know, American Pharaoh being the, the right horse. Now, he's A, unproven. He only has sort of his first horses now racing in America. Lovely foals we have here in Australia. But he is A, a first season sire effectively. So he's not proven. And we've seen some of these fantastic sort of American horses, big brown, those sorts of horses that haven't worked here. Now, I think he is one out of the box, American Pharaoh. Justify is in the same same sort of category. But given that they are American, they're very hit and miss. It's very hard to match them up, particularly on type. They're a different type, usually. They're, they're very strong in front. You know, they, they kind of pull, you know, the way they gallop is different to the way we gallop on turf. Um, even though, you know, they may well have had success on turf, it's very hard for American stallions to get the right one that will work here. More than ready is one who has, but he's not coming back to Australia. So that, again, is, is rather hit and miss going to, A, these unproven stallions, and B, the fact that they're international. Carolyn, uh, letters to the editor in the Sydney Morning Herald this week. Uh, under under the, the headline, uh, uh, salute to a great horse, but there is uh, one letter uh, that says, sold to the highest bidder for a life of racing and flogged to exhaustion for four years and now into a forced breeding program for her remaining days. How is this objectification right now? Could you give the horse person's view on... 
flogged for four years. I've, I haven't seen a flog, <laughs> but I, you know, I'm my eyes are ageing. No, I don't think Huey really ever had to go for the whip. I mean, she was pretty much eased down in most of those wins, and even the ones she had to, to try really hard when she you know, just managed to get there in a couple of her first up runs coming from the rear of the field. But I still don't think, A, she was flogged, Um, And I think the other thing with the breeding program is that they're very, very careful. If a mare doesn't want to be bred, you're pretty, you know, hard pushed to actually get the the stallion anywhere near the mare. So the mares themselves, they do so much testing on when they are actually ready to be receptive to the stallion. So as I said, if she's not ready for the stallion, she will try and kick the, the proverbial out of him. So, you know, she will be... In a in a state where she's ovulating, she's ready, you know, to within a, you know a twelve hour period or even less. These vets are incredible what they can do, and and they test you know the teaser pony goes near the mare to make sure that she's she's not going to be aggressive to the stallion. It's like anything in life. It's like keeping pet dogs. It depends on the extreme of what you want to go to as to whether a horses should race, whether they should be bred. But it's the same, as I said, as the extremes versus any sort of domesticated animal. It's an interesting point you make, Carolyn, or a scenario you describe, because I think a a number of Australians are probably thinking, oh, well, they they may be able to just keep breeding and breeding and breeding with her because there's IVF, she might have a surrogate mum. I mean, these are questions that I've been asked in the past week, and, and yet that's not allowed, is it, under the Australian stud book? No, exactly. No, if, if there was a court battle recently in the last few years trying to introduce IVF into Australian thoroughbred breeding. Now, if Australia was to do that and the court case was defeated, but if the, or the, the um, sort of you know plan to do that didn't get up, but if, if um, Australia was to do that, we would be ostracised from the international stud book, which would mean that none of our horses could race overseas, could go and stand as stallions overseas. We couldn't have international stallions coming to Australia. The whole of Australia within the global uh, breeding and racing scene. Would just it would just end. So there's no way there's IVF um, and any of those new sort of ways of, of you know surrogacy or any of that is, is not allowed within thoroughbred breeding. There's very very strict rules on that. So she can have potentially a foal every year. Um, then what happens? And the mares are incredibly clever the way the whole biology works. Probably after three or four years, they actually don't get involved. They they'll actually miss a season themselves. It would happen in the wild too. Then they can have an earlier cover the next year, which means that they get back on track. So it gradually readjusts itself by missing a year. And even the breeders, often breeders of these mares, will let the mare sit out after three years and, and just, you know, let them have a break. And it is worth remembering too that none of this will happen with Winks and whoever her lucky suitor is until September 1. But let's ask the big question last, Carolyn, if she was yours... Is there one stallion in Australia that you're thinking of at the moment that would be fitting to see Winks? Well, I was tossing up between a few. I mean, a lot of people have talked about the Autumn Sun, of course, her stable mate. I think he's he's probably too young. He's not really a robust type. I'd, I'd say he, you know, again, an unproven stallion. I think he will be a super stallion, but not yet, I wouldn't think. I am invincible, gorgeous-looking horse who would throw a beautiful sort of type. But, you know, he, he, he's had a lot of Group 1 horses, but I don't think he's had, you know, the real champions that some of these other stallions, such as a reduced choice, he's no longer with us, have had. Certainly, I, I do agree with Sir Patrick Hogan. Oh, Snitzel, of course is the other. He's the, the dual champion Australian sire currently um, and, and certainly he will be very much in the mix. But again, occasionally they can be a slight bit on the smaller side. But I think Fastnet Rock, he's had, as I mentioned, all those great horses. And I just think there's more chance of throwing a, a lovely, correct, big, strong foal 
even though he's getting a little bit older, that is something some people would counter. But but I do think he probably is the best one. And I certainly would be going through the Dane Hill Sireline. I think that really is particularly important. All this ovulation and sirelines, ladies, ladies, really. <laughs> Why not just let nature take its course, put Winks out in the paddock, and then say the stallion that can catch her, well, he can be the first one. <laughs> well, if you owned a stallion you paid twenty, thirty, forty million dollars for, I'm not sure you'd be letting letting the stallion loose in the paddock with a mare, Mac. Certainly and not I'm, with weeks. I, and I am sure that the stallions <laughs> that you've mentioned wouldn't catch her anyway. Uh, there's a very good point. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, no, unfortunately, just a little bit too risky. But I do agree. It certainly is a matter of the stallion being worthy of winks. It's very much the fact that the stallion needs to really be a horse that has proven themselves and, and deserves to have the great champion visit them. Carolyn Searcy is the presenter and producer of Bread to Win on Sky Racing. And Carolyn, as always, good to have you on ABC News Radio and Hoof on the Till. Thanks very much for that, Helen and Max. Well, Max, as far as the major promotion around Winks went last Saturday, things couldn't really go much better. But things don't look as shiny in Queensland, where the issue of integrity has become a major concern. One breeding farm has stepped away and said any horse that it uh, wholly or partially manages won't be racing in Queensland. Chris Munce, the well, he was the president of the Queensland branch of the Australian Trainers Association, has stepped away. And of course, most of the angst centres around the fact that trainer Ben Curry, who's facing something like 37 charges, and I, I think the slowness of the process is the the real sticking point for so many people, not just in Queensland, but around the country. Once upon a time, the ruling bodies were the clubs, the AJC, the VRC and the QTC. It, it wasn't democratic, but if they didn't like somebody, they just refused their nominations. They didn't race. Now, modern day, of course, legalities have come into it. The civil courts have come into it. And that's why uh, this issue is being dragged out. Now, barring Queensland racing over, I think that's a step too far. On a more positive note, if you read the new investor's guide that Ozhorse has put out in the last couple of weeks, nationally, things are certainly looking better. Certainly in New South Wales and Sydney in particular. I don't know whether racing has gone much better due, of course, to the Winks influence. But the championships at, uh, at Royal Randwick in recent weeks, look, have compared with the best. Sydney racing is booming. Yeah, New South Wales racing is booming and no buts about no, it. No, no, there is a but because according to this Horse Investors Guide, if you look nationally across Australia, just one fact, let's start here, Australian prize money has grown by 84% in the last 10 years. And to take us through exactly how that's come to be, Tom Riley joins us from Oshorse. Tom, good to have you on Hoof on the Till. Thanks for having me on. Tom, I would have thought that increase in prize money was, well, put it this way, I think prize money in Australia has gone up bigger than anywhere else in the world. Look, I think that's right. If any of the major racing nations, um, you know, in the last decade, we're up 84%. In America, it's actually gone backwards. Um, the UK is up a fair bit, but they're about to, to, to come down again. So we're way out in front of uh, any, any sort of comparable race. But why, Tom? Why has it gone up so much? I mean, that is a pretty staggering figure, isn't it? Yeah, look, it's a combination of just turnover. Uh, also, uh, the amount that corporate bookmakers, uh, the amount that's wagered with them, obviously that's getting funded back into the industry. You've also got a situation where, you know, you've got tax... Uh, harmonisation, so that meant that the New South Wales industry had more money available uh, available for prize money. 
Uh, and really the competition between New South Wales and Victoria, you know, some people have described it as a bit of an arms race in terms of prize money, you know, one wanting to, to, to increase and the other one having to match it. So I think a combination of all of those factors has played their part. Just on that point, can I ask too, uh, the new chair of Racing Australia, Greg Nichols, has said that he doesn't think there's been as active dialogue between the two states that you just mentioned, Victoria and New South Wales, as there should have been. Do you agree with that? Yes, I think, I think as Max said, racing is going brilliant in, in New South Wales and I'd argue that it's going very, very well in Victoria as well. Um, I'm sure there are a, you know, a few issues where actually if they work collaboratively together, uh, and in fact, if the whole country work collaboratively together, so all the PRAs and, and in fact, all the stakeholder groups, whether that's the breeders that I represent or you know, the jockeys and the trainers all work together on a, a number of issues, then actually things can go ahead even more so than they have done. Now, Winks, 43,000 at Randwick compared to what they would do at Flemington, which would be about 83,000, but it was still very encouraging at Randwick. But how are we going to keep a lot of those people going to the races regularly for the horse and not the booze? Yeah, I think it's, it's so important to promote the horse. Yeah, I was there last Saturday. It was just a fantastic day. Everyone was there for that spectacle. Everyone was there to, for that moment to watch her you know, winning her final race. Um, and I think it's important that we keep promoting the horse as well as, uh, as an event to go to. It's the personality, whether the equine or, you know, the jockeys or the trainers, that we can market the sport around, I think, and, and, and reach out to that audience. Tom, another interesting point that's come out of this Oshorse study is the fact that 63% of Group 1 winners across Australia were offered for sale before they hit the racetrack, obviously, well, most of them probably as yearlings. And also the point we've mentioned before, or you've mentioned before on the show, one in every 244 Australians own a share in a racehorse. So those two things taken together make the industry sound very democratic. And yet at the same time, if you delve a little bit deeper into this investor's guide, you say as for a participation, there are 101,402 people who own a share in a racehorse across Australia. Now, I know that's one in 244, but that figure of 100 or just over 100,000, that doesn't sound as good to me. When you say that figure to people, you know, either in the UK or in Ireland or America or in comparable sort of jurisdictions, they're staggered. Uh, one of the great things about Australia is that you don't have to own a whole horse. You can own 5%, you can own 10% and still feel very much engaged uh, with the horse and, and with racing. So um, 101,000 may not seem a lot to you, Helen, I think that means there are more owners. I'm pretty sure there are more owners in Australia than there are in the UK, Ireland, France combined. In fact, in all of Europe combined. I take that point. I accept that point. I think we've got more racehorse owners per capita than anywhere in the world. And Tom, I'd also put to you, and you'll no doubt agree, that we've got more interest from the owning section. But Helen is an owner and Helen is a breeder and she's pushing that point. Now, I'm a punter. And as you've pointed out here, racing is sailing very well on the punter's back. And what, 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 was there a figure there that there is more money bet on Australian racing in the United States than there is in Australia? There is more money wagered on Australian racing than there is on the whole of American racing. So two billion US dollars more is wagered on our racing uh, than is in the whole of American racing. I think America's got the biggest racing industry in the world yet. We bet significantly more on our industry than they do on theirs. We've been very positive so far. Uh, what do you think is, or what do you regard as racing's biggest problem at present? Look, there's always going to be challenges around integrity. I also think the challenge of welfare, I think it's really about uh, the industry preparing itself and explaining ourselves much better than we do at the moment. 
you know, I think horses are incredibly well cared for right away from, from birth uh, through retirement. And there's some great programs out there, especially with retired horses. But I think we probably need to communicate those a little bit better. Tom Riley talking about Horse Investor's Guide on ABC News Radio and Hoof. Max, question without notice. Has Tom convinced you now is the time not just to punt on Australian racing, but also to own an Australian racehorse? Look, Helen, I'll leave that to the really enthusiastic people like yourself. My enthusiasm goes into backing a winner. I I envy you. I envy your passion. But look, nothing beats backing a winner, unless unless you're in the company of a horse like Wix. You've been listening to Hoof on the Till on ABC News Radio and ABC Grandstand Digital. (laughs) 